And I, I think it's time that we acknowledge the very uncomfortable truth that a job as a unit of sharing in the gains in economic growth is no longer enough. And I see basic income as a wage supplement, a way to share in the gains for all, a way to give everyone a share of the economy. And, and that is how we move forward. It's how capitalism evolves to directly help everybody. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, universal basic income, radical socialist agenda, or a necessary dividend of the ongoing industrial revolution in automation and AI. In this episode, I'm joined by Mr. Floyd Marinescu. Floyd Marinescu is CEO and co-founder of C4 Media, which provides software development news and learning events serving 1.2 million online on InfoQ.com and 8,000 attendees annually via QCon conferences in San Francisco, New York, London, Beijing, Shanghai, and Sao Paulo. Floyd is an angel investor in over a dozen startups and has built teams and businesses in the U.S., Canada, China, Brazil, and Europe. Floyd is also a CEO activist for Universal Basic Income. He's the founder of CEOs for Basic Income and UBI Works. Mr. Marinescu, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you. Glad to be here. This is great. I'm really excited to talk to you about Universal Basic Income. Could you at first, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got interested in universal basic income. Certainly. Uh, so I've been running this, this tech education-related business for the last uh, 15 years, uh, meeting some of uh, the top programmers around the world, connecting them to share best practices. Uh, myself, I went to University of Waterloo uh, in Canada, uh, did a computer science there. And um, yeah, I, I first heard about basic income when I heard Elon Musk talking about it a few years ago as an answer to the future uh, AI apocalypse of jobs. But uh, my own read on the situation is that there isn't necessarily going to be an AI apocalypse of jobs, but there will be, and there already has been, rapid disruption of people losing their careers. Uh, it happened to my dad and uncle in the early 2000s when the manufacturing sector in North America contracted. And we know now through research that the contraction happened, uh, yes, probably triggered by China, but was primarily automation. Five times more jobs were lost to automation than trade. So what happens is, is, is China enters the scene, creates a, a rapid loss of income, uh, automate, uh, manufacturers respond through it by automating the state to survive. And we're seeing the same thing happening now with the pandemic, where businesses are automating to survive. And before the pandemic, 42% uh, of all the jobs Canadians do at work was automatable with existing technologies. So we're seeing a rapid, wow. very rapid adoption of technologies now that simulates what happened in the 2000s. And I'm, I'm quite concerned. What will happen to people? Like what happened to my dad and uncle who simply there was just no more jobs to go back to because robots became cheaper, businesses contracted, the, the ones who could afford to automate survived, everyone else was displaced. And it's happening now. So I, I've decided to become an advocate for basic income for many years now. Uh, in, in, because I can see the writing on the wall and what's actually happening, what happens to people like my dad and uncle and people who are, are faced with losing their jobs and also those who don't even know they're necessarily losing their jobs because what happens is over time, the middle class shrinks and we create more low income jobs than high income jobs. 
That, that's called the fourth industrial revolution. We're seeing uh, technology displacing middle income work. And some people are definitely going into higher income jobs who have the right skills. But we're seeing uh, this un, an underclass forming of people experiencing low income work who can't make ends meet no matter how hard they try. And there's just not enough of those high income jobs anyway. So there's only 8% jobs are STEM. So this is a massive transformation in society that is is breaking the old promise, the covenants that economic growth is supposed to lift all boats uh, it, or mm. raise all boats, whatever the saying is. It's not doing that anymore. In a previous podcast, I analyzed the economical data over the past 50 years, and it shows a steady increase in the income gap between the top you know, 5%, 1%, and the bottom 90% of households. Living standards are declining for the majority of the populace, I think. Uh, median household incomes have gone up slightly over this period, maybe 30%. Uh, but the medium household has gone from one income earner to two income earners at the same time. So they've lost the value of a stay-at-home parent uh, just because they need the two incomes to pay the rent and buy food. So over the same period, average hourly productivity has more than doubled. How did these things become decoupled? They've been decoupled. It's called the great decoupling. And in addition, median wealth has actually fallen in the U.S. Uh, we don't, I don't have the stats for Canada, but I'd be shocked if it wasn't the same. So what we're seeing is, is again, what I said, the, the way the economy works is no longer working. The way we, th we think it's still working like in the 1970s, where you work hard and you get ahead, but it's not. So what's the, what is the answer? And I think the old playbook is not going to work here because this time in the fourth industrial revolution, the kinds of, of work that can be displaced is is significantly different from, from before where AI can do thinking tasks, high-end tasks, low-end tasks. And I, I think it's time that we acknowledge the very uncomfortable truth that a job as a unit of sharing in the gains in economic growth is no longer enough. And I see basic income as a wage supplement, a way to share in the gains for all, a way to give everyone a share of the economy. And, and that is how we move forward. It's how capitalism evolves, to directly help everybody through a dividend that everyone gets. And UBI Works, the nonprofit that I founded, has put forward a proposal that includes called Recovery UBI. It, we show eight ways to pay for it, to provide $500 a month to all adults in Canada as part of a $2,000 a month basic income guarantee. So we give everyone a share of the economy while helping those who, who need it with a bit more uh, because in this industrial revolution, what people need is time. People at the bottom need time to retrain, to retrain, to find better jobs, to re-educate. Every industrial revolution has required a massive social investment to bring forward people left behind uh, by the disruption. And, and this time, people need time. So you're advocating for uh, a true universal basic income. Everybody from the poorest person to the richest person gets the same amount of money. Now, other people have put forward ideas like a guaranteed minimum income, such that you know there's a threshold income at which you start getting payments. Can you tell me why you prefer one over the other, or maybe give us a little background on why this is a, a good idea? Absolutely. So interestingly, uh, around the world, the universal basic income, meaning everyone gets the same amount, even if it's a small amount, is typically what is, is, is mostly advocated for. In Canada, though, we're more progressive. And in Canada, uh, the, the, the long-established advocates, uh, as well as politicians who are for it, uh, come from um, a more of an anti-poverty lens. So for them, the basic income guarantee, which is, say, everyone has a benefit of 1600 or up to 2000 a month, 
but the benefit phases out as your employment income grows. So perhaps after 45 or 50,000 of employment income, you don't keep, you don't have any of it anymore, and you become a net taxpayer. So a program like that creates a floor. It, it, it ends working poverty, which is really important. It also replaces, it can replace the social safety system as we know it, uh, with with more generous payments, can create efficiency, and it's it's politically in the realm of of more. It's more understandable how we might get it politically because the net cost of it appears quite low. Um, and it's a very worthy program, and I, I am for a basic income guarantee. But it, 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 the problem it's solving is poverty. It's also solving the poverty, the problem of giving people time. So for example, students can stay in school longer. Uh, entrepreneurs can not work for a while and work on their business. Uh, it's like seed funding for, for other people. Uh, but at, at UBI Works, we're looking at that and the wider problem of our economic system no longer driving wage growth, including at the median. So if you want to solve that problem, create an economy where the flows of capital are directly benefiting everyone, where, where technology and automation is directly benefiting everyone, you also have to help working people. So we believe that a dividend must be part of it. And that's why our, our program includes components of both. And in doing so involves a much higher price tag. It's nearly four times, the two to four times more expensive, depending on which program you're comparing it to. However, I think that's what it's going to take to have a more, slightly more equal society, a more dynamic economy, to give a raise to the middle class. And you could also think about the dividend as effectively a tax rebate for the, for, for the middle class. It offsets whatever tax reform would have happened to pay for that basic income, shifting the burden of contribution onto the higher, highest decile income earners, no matter what that tax reform was, whether it's GST increasing, whether it's any name, you name it, there's, there's hundreds of taxes you could think of, but the dividend as a rebate ends up sort of netting the contributions to the top where they frankly belong. This is, you know, a very beneficial for the poor, but most people, if you present universal basic income, are going to balk and say this is a radical socialist idea, you know, and socialism doesn't work. Uh, Hard-working taxpayers feel like they're giving their money to the lazy. How do you respond to these criticisms? How do you tell people that this can be a mainstream idea? Well, it's just capitalism where no one starts at zero every month. It's a raise for working people as much as it is a more efficient and more dignified way to reform our social safety net. Uh, it's a raise for you. Sure, but... but no looking at the numbers i mean if you have you know 38 million people and you're giving them all 20 20,000 you're you're looking at you know 3 quarters of a billion 3 quarters of a trillion dollars every year that's that's huge yeah and that's why our program has a $500 a month raise for all adults as part of a $2000 floor for everyone and it turns out that the net cost of this uh, net cost factoring in this being on top of existing government transfers uh, is only 199 billion. Uh, so that means that for 199 billion more, which doesn't need to be all funded through tax increase, you can use partial debt financing because a basic income will grow the economy. Economic growth can outpace the need for some tax increases. Um, you can actually have a basic income where all adults get a, a little bit more and you create a new standard under which you can then reform uh, the social safety net because that extra 100 billion or so that is that is not included in that net cost calculation is already flowing through a myriad of tax credits and social programs that can all be included in one national basic income.
I see. So you're you're talking about there's a a big existing pool there that you would just flow into this, and you would discontinue these other uh, programs, uh, and then on top of that, the net additional is about two hundred billion dollars. You're saying. That's right. That's what we've costed. However, we're not advocating for eliminating any programs. So our, our model is additive and it is uh, proposed as a transitionary measure as a way to provide this economic relief now and allow months or years following for all those programs underneath this 200 billion, that, that extra 100 billion or so to be consolidated in a compassionate manner because a dollar is a dollar, whether it comes from one program or 50. And the, the important thing we want to preserve is the in-kind services that those other social assistance uh, programs provide. And, and those are not a dollar value thing. Those need to be pr pr preserved. So many amateur sociologists on the right side of the spectrum would say that this money is just going to be spent on drugs and alcohol and it's going to disincentivize people from working. Is there any data? Is there any... Um, experiments that we could refer to that show that you know giving people this is not going to decrease the amount of work that gets done. Um, absolutely. So we have uh, in Vancouver uh, just recently, actually, a, an experiment concluded where a hundred homeless people were given seven thousand five hundred dollars, and a year later they were tracked. And it turns out that spending on alcohol and drugs actually went down by thirty nine percent. This finding has been replicated in the 70s with the experiment in, Manit in Dolphin, Manitoba. It's also been replicated in many other countries where basic income trials were attempted. Uh, this is just a, a known fact right now, and I think it's because people have hope. When you have hope, you can invest in better outcomes for yourself. Why do people numb out through, through spending on alcohol and drugs? It's to escape a hopeless situation. Uh, basic income provides hope. That's, that's the missing link. It's like a... Like a Star Trek future, I think, and I've looked at some of your previous talks, you've, you've called it that. Um, <laughs> you know, people are going to see this as science fiction and, and not going to believe it. I mean, it, you can't do that. You can't give people money. Well, let's talk science fiction from a, a well-noted economist. Um, John Maynard Keynes said that by now, 100 years later, from, from his initial predictions, we would have a 15-hour work week because productivity would be so high technological productivity. I would challenge the listener, how do we know we're not already there? Indeed, if you look at the, the economic data, you know, our productivity per hour has doubled from 1970, but the work week hasn't halved. All that additional money has yeah. gone either to the top 1% or has gone offshore to the manufacturing jobs that we've sent to Asia. Well, those manufacturing jobs have also lifted people out of poverty, created a middle class. But meanwhile, wealth has been still earned here at, at, level, at record levels. It's just not being shared in the way that it used to uh, through, the, through the employment system. So I would argue that we're making more money than ever before. And the only way to, to realize John Maynard Keynes' prediction is that people could afford to make that decision. You can't regulate a shorter work week. People need to be able to afford to choose that. And as jobs become increasingly contract or gig-based uh, or part-time, basic income is how we achieve a shorter work week without, without regulation that would be impossible anyway because people are in poverty can't choose that. So I, from speaking of a Star Trek future, I mean him, uh, Stephen Hawking, the former uh, late physicist, also, also mentioned this, that, that given the extreme... Uh, extreme automation of jobs that we're facing in the future. Some sort of wealth redistribution, so for lack of a better word, is the only way that humanity can all benefit from this, this, uh, from this growth in technology. And um, I would argue that technology is our common wealth. 
you know, it's largely the result of contributions of, of scientists, academics, entrepreneurs of the past, public financing from the past, and um, we should share in its gains to some limited extent, at least, at the very least, to end poverty. And that is how we progress forward as a as a, as a species, frankly. Yeah, I, I like that message. But right now, much of the wealth of the world is locked up in the holdings of, say, the top 0.1% of people. And, you know, this is all um, non-liquid value in a stock market that gives them the money. And the rich are the ones that are valuing the stock market. Is this real money? Does this exist? If we started going into their coffers and getting them to pay extra taxes to support this UBI, does the, you know, do we have the productivity to support society at a higher level of, um, that everyone's vote can be floated? Yes, so on our website, we show eight ways to pay for recovery UBI that all have different ideological leanings. And, uh, and some are new taxes that, that have been proposed that we don't have in Canada um, that, that are not as necessarily as controversial as the wealth tax. The wealth tax, by the way, would only, would only raise like $11 billion a year. So it's not even, it's not really it's much to talk about there. Um, there's other, other taxes that are more uniform that would, um, would, would be also seen as fair and, and could raise uh, the income that we need. Uh, so the money is there. It's a matter of public will. And I think we've shown that that we, there is enough. Um, and I would argue that it, this is also a way to improve the dynamism and the economic growth in our system. Uh, by Within a month, there'll be a report coming out from the Canadian Centre of Economics Analysis looking at the growth impacts on the economy of a basic income. And, and they, they're going to show, because I, I had access to some of the numbers, uh, potentially creating as much as a million jobs just by implementing a basic income because so many people are are spending far below basic needs that the additional stimulus of that money in the economy would drive drive hiring on the, on the supply side and result in a better economy. And their report doesn't even look at, at, at behavioral impacts like the fact that entrepreneurs could, could take more risks. Anyone could take more risks. Half this country is living check to check. You can't take risks and start businesses or, or, or retrain for a new job when you're precarious. Innovation is the building block of all of our wealth. It's the basis of our economic prosperity. And we can't have innovation when people are becoming increasingly scared and living check to check. I mean, it just, not, it just slowed down. It's, and a number of, um, one of the initiatives I organized in 2018 is I got 120 Canadian CEOs to sign a letter asking uh, Minister Ford from Ontario to not cancel the Ontario pilot. And some of those CEOs asked them, why are you signing this letter? Not all of them were technologists like me. Some said because entrepreneurship should not be only the, the, the domain of rich white kids. It should be for everyone. Everyone should be able to take a risk and try something new. And that's what a base income would do. So if, let me play, play devil's advocate here. If there was a universal basic income, wouldn't there be jobs that society needs to function that people just wouldn't do anymore? <laughs> I love that question. Tell me why do garbage truck operators make an average of 60,000 a year. You got me. <laughs> well, well, they, for one thing, they have a union, but and, uh, that's a big factor. But uh, the less desirable jobs will just have to pay more. What's wrong with that? If you can afford your basic needs, you can hold out for better pay. And we, I don't think we don't, we're not going to see a need to regulate higher pay. It'll just happen because people can actually 
pursue the jobs they want and, and reject abusive jobs or jobs that don't respect them or pay them don't pay enough. I think that's the kind that's that is a job market that is actually a free market. If you're free to not work, you're free to work for the pay that you deserve. And that's the kind of, of freedom that we should really be aspiring to. Without without the UBI, people are coerced into taking these jobs to pay for food and, and housing. So you're saying that the UBI changes the dynamics of the job market so that it's more of a you more of a, an employee's market rather than an employer's market. Yeah, it would do that. And I think the results would be mixed. I, I'm not su- suggesting that all uh, um, that all labor would have to go- get more expensive because, in fact, it could also enable what I call the volunteering economy. A lot of people might choose to work for a lot less because they're working on things they're passionate about. Maybe there's a small town with a, a community bakery that can't afford to pay even pay minimum wage and people can band together in some sort of co-op-like thing uh, where they, where with their UBI, they can also share a bit of the profit and keep that bakery running because they, they just love doing that. There can be a lot of examples like that where people are working for less uh, because they're passionate about it. But there'll also be examples like someone who, McDonald's having to just pay out more for the, for, for the jobs that they offer because people maybe don't want to go work there. They're not offering enough benefits. So this is something that um, I'm actually really excited about. Imagine a future where people are choosing to work uh, in the places that they're they're working because it suits them best or because the pay is fair. And, and all that happens through using market dynamics, not because of any sort of regulation or any sort of uh, virtue signaling. It just happens based on cold, hard reality of people having freedom. That certainly will change the, the economic dynamics. It's going to be a, a huge upheaval, I would think. Like the costs of certain things will go up and some things will go down. It's a It's a different mindset than the situation we're living in now. Have you explored at all what you think the impacts of some of these changes might be? Well, we've discussed some of them here so, so far, and um, I think we're going to see an explosion in entrepreneurship. I think we're going to see a lot of people going back to school. I remember being in a panel of people who were receiving the Ontario Pilots uh, basic income, and, and, and three quarters of them had gone back to college. Because they, they could finally, they could actually afford to do that. I also asked them, well, what would you have done differently if this pilot was 15 years long and not three? And, and the hands went up quick. And I was like, whoa, what are they going to say? And they said, we would move. Because all of them were in really crappy housing. And they could actually afford a long-term lease in a, in a reasonable place. So, so bringing market dynamics, real market dynamics to the housing market, you might actually see some rents going up at the bottom. I don't think there'd be any impact at the, uh, around the middle or, or lower middle of the market. I think you might see rents go up slightly in, 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 in better than the absolute worst type of housing where people want to move up uh, from the absolute worst. And at the, at the low end, you would see probably housing get improved. Uh, a lot of rent is actually now subsidized by the fact that landlords actually aren't in some ways not making enough to keep to maintain their properties um, due to a variety of reasons so you might see some some lifting at the bottom but i don't think for instance that rent would would some of the worst people sorry some of the worst uh, fears of that rent will just increase to gobble up the basic income there's no reason to believe that it's not like people aren't living somewhere now um, the, the, the supply of, of housing is a market like any other and and more more supply can respond as there is greater demand yeah there's no reason to believe there's going to be inflation anywhere else we've actually been in a, in a deflationary situation for for consumer goods for for decades now with automation and with mm-hmm. china entering the, the fold 
gold. We're actually facing more deflationary pressures in, in many sectors than inflationary pressures. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think well, those are some of them, some of the impacts anyway. I, I'm most excited about seeing a future where people can truly pursue their potential uh, knowing that they, they can't fail. Fail as in like worst case scenario will never happen. And from my own personal experience, I, I was so... Um, I was pretty paranoid about money when I was younger for a number of reasons. I, I didn't grow up well off. And when I had a chance, I was very lucky in my tech uh, tech career to have a bit of money in my early 20s to buy a, a, an investment property. And I lived off the basic income that the rental income afforded me. And with that security, I was able to start a business. I would not have started my own business if I didn't have that rental security. And, um, and I, I would like to, that opportunity to be available to everyone. You mentioned that you've got several ways to pay for this on your website and i'm very interested in hearing a little bit more about you know the the benefits so obviously we know that there's a big upfront cost and how does this get paid for now i've looked at the the dauphin manitoba experiment and from the data that they had there healthcare costs actually decreased by something like nine percent during the experiment because people were taking better care of themselves and they weren't as depressed and they weren't as stressed um what what other benefits do might we see that uh, you know feedbacks from from having this this floor in place right so definitely a decrease or at least a, um, a stabilization of healthcare costs which is one of the the number one concern in terms of increasing budget items on government budgets um, in canada and around the world I think that's really important. I know I heard a story of a doctor in Toronto who prescribes income <laughs> to his patients. He actually has an assistant who helps those patients figure out what income support they 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 qualify for because because he knows that if they were just less stressed and they could afford healthy food, they they would be in his office a lot less frequently. Mm-hmm. So there would be a, a huge decline in 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 demand due to food insecurity and stress on the healthcare system. Uh, that's been proven. In fact, uh, one of the researchers who looked at, at the Manitoba trial said that basic income is like an antidepressant. <laughs> it has the same impacts on, on your well-being. <laughs> um, a lot of, um, in many countries where basic income has been attempted, we saw a meaningful decrease in crime. In fact, in, in some third world countries, we see de- crime declining by like 50%. 50%? Uh, so, yeah, I believe it was in the, Namibia. There was a, almost a 50% decline in crime rates. Um, actually, here in Canada, I remember reading an article about a police chief uh, in Ontario, I forgot which town, saying that Serb fraud decreased crime, meaning people who, who got the Serb, who didn't actually shouldn't have gotten it, committed less crimes because they already had money and they didn't have to go commit crimes on the street. <laughs> wow. So, so I was like, what? That's, that's amazing. <laughs> So do your costings take an account of any of these expected social changes? No, because they're, those are very hard to quantify. So our costings are purely on studied tax reforms that have been proposed by various institutions in the last 20 years. We, we created a huge spreadsheet of every tax reform idea that's ever been proposed in Canada. It adds up to almost a trillion dollars of ideas. And we sliced and diced that into eight different ways to raise uh, about $113 billion dollars. Uh, which we we were proposing is um, is a smaller amount you need to raise if you can use some some debt financing, uh, which would be temporary and sustainable, uh, because again the economy would grow with the basic income, so you wouldn't need to raise the full uh, amount up front. 
This is basically the opposite of the, the neoliberal trickle-down ideas that kind of um, flunked over the past uh, 50 years or so. Yeah, well, they, 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 they were proven wrong. I mean, it's not the wealth isn't trickling down. If it was, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> we had the, the, the big failure in 2008 of the, the housing bubble, the subprime mortgage collapse, and the big banks being bailed out for trillions of dollars. But, you know, people losing their homes and their livelihoods. And now, you know, the current situation is, again, we have coronavirus shutdowns and small businesses are failing and people are losing their jobs. So, you know, is this the ideal time to be pushing forward on UBI? Is this politically something that we can do? I believe it's absolutely the ideal time, a number of reasons. I mean, thankfully in Canada... That we've been implementing temporary basic incomes without calling it that. I mean, the CERB was actually more welfare than basic income because you, you lose the money when you work. But the CRB mm. and EI are basic incomes where you keep the money while you work. You build your income on top of it just temporarily. So that's really, they, have, they actually have the same clawback, 50%, 50 cents on every dollar, you, 50 cents for every 50 cents of labor income, I believe, a, a dollar... Sorry, it's the other way around. For every dollar of labor income, 50 cents is clawed back from your benefit. So that means if you're getting $2,000 as a benefit uh, and you're earning, let's say, uh, $20,000 a year, then you only lose 10000 of your uh, of your benefits. You keep another fourteen. So that's how basic incomes work. The EI system is, is built that way. So these, these are all temporary basic incomes. So now Canadians, millions of Canadians, have six months more of support. What will happen after that six months? I don't think we're going to see the economy having recovered, um, even if the pandemic restrictions miraculously lift because we have vaccines, which I don't think are going to come that quickly. Uh, we're still going to have an economy that has gone through a massive automation cycle, one year of automation, rapid automation, and we're going to have persistent uh, joblessness of a kind that I think we haven't seen since the Great Depression. That's a lot of people are going to be applying for social assistance with all the sort of bureaucracy and indignities that, that that entails. So now is now is the time to to promote basic income and to put it on the agenda. And I think um, all the trends that have brought us to this place, a broken economy where technology is cheaper than workers and wage growth isn't going up, and we're seeing the stock market explode while people are, are losing their jobs, all these trends are, are now accelerated. And they're only going to get worse. There's, there's no trend I'm aware of coming down the horizon, that will suddenly mean a lot of new middle-class jobs and, and great opportunity for people to move up the ladder. There's nothing. And it is time that we finally implemented a basic income. So politically, to make this work, you're going to have to get people to accept whatever new taxes you're, you're bringing in to pay for it. And at this point in time, when they don't have incomes, the thought of new taxes scares voters. And it's easy for uh, people that are against universal basic income to use that as a stick uh, to say these people are going to increase your taxes you can't afford that right now how do you respond i would argue that there are tax reforms that will put more money in the hands of most canadians uh, some of the reforms that we suggested would fall harder on the top 10 to 15 percent uh, and it's this is something that will grow the middle class so at the end of the day the middle class is a swing vote that can make an election happen. And it's the middle class that is most in peril uh, by, uh, by these trends that we've discussed so far in this interview. Um, it is in their interest that we implement a basic income. And that is how elections will swing. So the arguments that the strategy that UBI works is following 
is to show people that this is a raise for working people as well as an anti-poverty measure, that it is a way to provide jobs security. If you lose your job, if, if your job is lost due to the next pandemic or due to automation or due to whatever reasons, this is your security that you have. And if you also accept a variant that has a dividend, it's also a raise on your income and, or a tax rebate at the very least. So what do you think is the best uh, funding mechanism? What is the best way to go forward, the, the, the fairest tax distribution that can fund this? What, how, do, how do you sell this to me? It depends. So first of all, let, let's discuss the most ambitious plan, which is Recovery EBI for Canada. It's the most expensive that's ever been proposed um, and the most ambitious. It's not, it's not 2000 bucks a month for everyone because that would be like $700 billion. It, it's 500 bucks a month for all adults uh, with a floor of 2000 so, so there's a raise for the middle, and there's also a floor for people who need it most. And for this program, one of our costings, we, we, we want to find, um, we want to find tax reforms that literally fulfill the promise that you can get a share of the economy, a share of our productivity growth. The GST is one of the ways to do that. The GST literally is all the transactions in the country. That is one way not to anchor. Um, a major tax reform. If we increased our GST to European levels, in, included in, threw in a few other increases in corporate taxes, which are not that controversial, that have been discussed for decades, you would have enough. That's one approach. Um, another approach is reducing tax expenditures that primarily favor people in the top 10 to 15%. For example, all the tax breaks that the government gives to RSP and TFSA plans, uh, that alone uh, we're helping the retirement plans of people who already have a lot of money when that money could actually be paying uh, for nearly half the cost of a basic income. Just that alone. And most people will be better off with a $2,000 floor in their retirement than they would now with uh, GIS and OAS. Um, combined with the basic personal amount, the basic personal amount is a is a uh, currently $11,000 de deduction in your income tax owing. Uh, it makes it's a deduction at all tax levels. If we just eliminated that and gave people money instead, that would cover the other half. Like those two things alone, would pay for uh, a, a basic income in the country. Um, wow. There's some futuristic taxes that I'm kind of fond of. Uh, one is a micro payments tax. There are 50 trillion, if I think, electronic payments in Canada every year. If you applied a 0 0.2 percent transactions tax. Every time money moves from your left hand to your right hand, uh, you would actually raise $160 billion. That could pay for basic income and lower income taxes at the same time. Tr truly just tracking to the economy. Um, but then I think the perhaps the elephants or maybe the unicorn in the room that I think will need to be discussed for any meaningful long-term reform is something that is capturing in the increase in the value of our land. Milton Friedman said that a land value tax is the least bad of all taxes. It can't be evaded through global restructurings. Uh, Amazon can't evade it. Um, and our land values are increasing mainly due to the, imp the, the manipulations of the Bank of Canada, as well as ever having very high immigration rates. They're not increasing because of anyone's hard work. And land values are driving up property values and are increasing to a point to make uh, property ownership unaffordable by the next generation and generations to come. The Bank of Canada during this pandemic has intervened so much so that even during this time of incredible job loss, we're seeing property rates still increasing 10 to 20% uh, property values. 86% of the wealth in this country is in real estate. And perhaps a reform to capture 
all this growth in wealth, all the impacts of our economic growth that primarily favors the super wealthy would be to capture in the increasing value of our land and give that back to people as money in their pockets. In fact, many Canadians are equity rich and cash poor. This would be cash in your pocket from the increasing value of our land. And all that means is that when you sell your house, uh, you would keep a bit less of that gain. And, some of the, and that gain from the, from the increase in the value of land perhaps was never yours to begin with because that, that value has been increasing due to growth in the economy and, and effects of immigration and nothing to do with anyone's hard work. Yeah, the, the price of, of housing has really skyrocketed well beyond the, um, the inflation rate, for example. I'm wondering if you know this is due to banks creating money to make home loans effectively. I mean, whenever you make a home it loan, is. they're just creating money out of thin air and it's just inflating that market, right? It is. Well, the Bank of Canada, the central banks around the world, it, it, it seems to me, are, are more than concerned with preserving the value of wealthy people's assets than they are about the actual uh, life for people, for working people and, and their affordability. So what they're doing now is they're buying hundreds of billions of, of bonds, Canada mortgage bonds, uh, which are flooding money into the banks. The banks are now issuing very cheap loans for like a, there's now you can get a five-year closed residential loan for 1.5%, 1.5%, it's practically free. So what we're doing during a pandemic is is creating more demand for housing, which is raising the prices, making them even more unaffordable for most people. We're, we are literally bankrupting and indebting the next generation just to maintain the asset values of, of people of this generation and especially of the wealthy. And it is it is this money is primarily helping asset holders. The, and you know, 40% of the country, I believe, is renting. They're not seeing any of this gain. In fact, their rents are going up, making life harder for them. And that that is a shame. Like the, like the the central banks are even buying private company bonds and stocks, doing whatever they can to prop up assets. Why don't they just give people money instead? <laughs> Have a bottom up um, recovery here. They're still stuck in the it. trickle down uh, mindset. I think the, the neoliberals run those things. What would this um, land tax do to farmers and landowners? Is this something that we have to think about? Yeah, so a land value tax would actually promote more productive use of land. It would replace property tax. It would replace uh, land transfer taxes, for instance. So downtown, if you have a, a shack next to a skyscraper, the shack would pay the same tax as the skyscraper. So clearly that shack would not no longer be viable. They would have to sell and you would see property developers going in there and building condos. We'd be increasing the actual housing stock rapidly in our most productive areas. It would disincentivize derelict buildings, empty parking lots. It would disincentivize um, just urban sprawl. It would become more affordable to live in slightly more dense uh, areas, which is maybe not what people want to hear during a pandemic, but uh, <laughs> it is what it, that is what it would do. Um, and... Uh, in, in rural in, in rural situations, it would mean that the, the most I'm not an expert on land value tax, but what I have read is that um, it would it would encourage the, the most productive types of crops to be used on land and, and not less productive crops. And in some cases, um, I, one of the experts on this told me that with um, that eventually it would allow uh, new farmers, new generations of farmers to access land for very low leasing rates, perhaps leased from the government and start farming for, for things that, that are the most productive. I don't quite understand that mechanism. I have to find out more. Uh, but the land outside of the big cities, I don't see, think would see a tremendous increase uh, in, 
in, in uh, tax on this and probably would be offset by by the incoming dividend uh, for example from a from a true universal basic income uh, anyway okay let's say I'm convinced let's say I and I do like this idea I think it's important to to have the safety net in place what's the steps what can people do to to help move this forward how do we support this yeah, well, one of the best things you can do is, is actually call your member of parliament, leave a voicemail, let them know that, that you care about this. Um, occupy your local riding association for whatever party you're part of. Like, go there, like, participate. Like, make basic income on the agenda. Uh, on UBI Works' website, sign our Recovery UBI um, uh, petition, which will automatically email your MP and Justin Trudeau and Krista Freeland. Uh, the more numbers on that, the more uh, the more public support we're showing, and especially for our narrative, which is mainly about economic revitalization, which I think is a is a more uh, centrist narrative that will travel better. Um, these are some of the things you can do. M make yourself known. We need to make it so that all the parties are afraid not to run on basic income in the next election, and that is the mission of UBI Works: is to put this on the make this a major election issue in this country. And right now, only one party is officially for it: just the Green Party. Uh, so even NDP hasn't officially come out for it. Even the Liberals, the number of rogue MPs are for it, and they're talking about it, but the party isn't for it. So whatever party you're part of, um, even in the Conservative Party, there are, not, there are some MPs who are for it. And so whatever party you're in, you need to get involved. Start talking about this. So who is, um, who's funding UBI Works? Where does the funding come from for that? Uh, it comes from uh, from me and a group of other business owners that are friends of mine that believe in this cause. Excellent, excellent. So I think we're running uh, towards the end of our time slot here, and I'd just like to thank you for joining me on The Rational View. This has been very educational, and, and I've learned a lot about how uh, UBI uh, is supposed to work. It's been really cool. Thank you. Thank you. And before you go, I have one extra question for you. Okay. Which Star Trek series is the best? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, everyone seems to like the one that they grew up with. So for me, that would be Next Generation. But I will say that uh, I think Voyager was a very close second. And uh, for the for similar reasons, I thought that uh, the second half of DS9 was actually the best storytelling in Star Trek, I thought. Although yeah, not, good. Although I, I liked that too. Next Gen best. And I recently watched... Uh, um, uh, Enterprise from the beginning. I'm like, that was actually really good. Very good storytelling. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Do you identify with any of the characters? Um, I used to be really into Data, but now I like Picard more. Ah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't age. He doesn't really age, yeah. And, and Worf was always a slight <laughs> fascination. It reminds me of my dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, very good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on The Rational View. Uh, I had a great time. Thank you. Yeah. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patreon.podbean.com slash the rational view.